Hello and welcome to the Evil Eye Podcast, where we talk about wonderful goth movies and sometimes not so wonderful goth movies. I'm your co-host, Sam Deegan. I am your other co-host, Robert Scavarla. And the movie for this episode is one of my personal favorites. It's called Legacy of Satan from 1974. Uh, Yeah, I don't really have a lot to say about it. It's definitely not one of my favorites, but um, this is why we do this, because we each have different tastes. And I'm sure we will get into an argument about why you're wrong later on. But I'm so, wrong about many things. I am a man, so therefore I am wrong. <laughs> so Legacy of Satan is one of those movies that I didn't stumble across until more recently. And I think the reason for this is because it's directed by Gerard Damiano, who is best known for his porn films. This is really his only non-hardcore film or non-sex film. Do we want to mention what those films are he's known for in case anyone who's listening to this isn't as versed in adult cinema as the two of us are, or especially you, since you are an expert? Yeah. um, He is known for the big one. Well, that's not the title of the movie. It could be a title for a porn film, but... And Harry Reams does have a pretty big one. What what is uh, Damiano's best known film? Well, his best known film is, is Deep Throat, which he made... The same year that he made Legacy of Satan. So Legacy of Satan was shot in 72, but not released until 74. And 72 was also the year that Deep Throat came out and sort of changed the face of American porn films and the sort of idea of porno chic, like it being cool. Launched the golden age of porn. Yeah. And then the following year, I think his best film, The Devil and Miss Jones, came out. And that's kind of where he started getting... It's not that he wasn't already known because Deep Throat was a hit, but I remember reading in 73, I think Devil and Miss Jones was one of the top 10 grossing films. And Deep Throat was number 11. So he had two of the top 11 grossing films of the year. And this isn't just adult films. These are major cinematic films. This was an era when adult films were playing in legit theaters. Yeah, which I wish was the case now, but alas. although Well, it would be a little different today where it's, you know, point of view cam running for 20 minutes. It would be a little harder for that to play in a normal theater. (laughs) Whereas back then you had like a feature length film where they had aspirations towards making art. Whereas today it's It's, the money shot and that's It's I'm in the kitchen with my (laughs) stepmom, which is basically. Is that a name of a series? (laughs) No, that's like all of Pornhub. Um, I mean, if you look at like the top 20 trending videos on Pornhub, yes, there's a weird, everyone's in love with their stepmom, but it's not really. It's like fake incest. Stepmom in quotes when it's really. stepsister. It's really like the step (laughs) is there as like a safety net for people to feel better about themselves and their weird desires. Damiano, the thing that sort of frustrates me a little bit is he did make some porn comedies, especially with Harry Reams. One which just got re-released. Who starred in Deep Throat. Um, but I'm thinking of Let My Puppets Come, oh, which just yes. got put out by Vinegar Syndrome. Yes. Which, yeah. god damn, that's a title. Yeah, If so if you are listening to this episode and don't know anything about me, I am a film critic, I do commentary tracks, and I work with Vinegar Syndrome pretty often, so I do tracks on hardcore films. So Shout out to Vinegar Syndrome, yes, best label out there. They're wonderful. Um, so, But my issue... and. At this point, I've done some Damiano tracks. I'm a huge fan of his work. But my issue is that it sort of frustrates me that he's known for Deep Throat, which is really fun. 
but like it's a comedy whereas his best films are things like Devil and Miss Jones which you mentioned uh, dark films really dark like Night memory Hunger, yeah stuff like memories that. within Miss Aggie story of Joanna which is one of my favorite films period regardless mm-hmm. of hardcore and i think legacy of satan really fits within that sort of trend of films that he made in the 70s that have these really, really dark psychological themes and they often have these sort of tormented female protagonists. Surreal elements as well. Very surreal, dreamlike. Yeah, and I think this makes a great double feature with Devil and Miss Jones, although, as we said, that is a hardcore film. So if you're somewhat delicate about sex (laughs) films, you probably want to avoid all of Damiano's other films. So that's one of the things that's interesting about this film and researching it. Watching it, you get the sense that either it was initially conceived as an adult film or it was shot as one and those elements were cut out. And there seems to be a dispute over this. Um, And I I can't call it scholarship because there isn't a lot of scholarship around this film. It's more like people... Um, bloggers writing about the film and not really having any idea of like how that worked. So on like one site, um, Bleeding Skull, they say it's uh, it was shot as a hardcore film. That yeah, which is which, not, but then you not read true. somewhere else, and it's not. No one seems to know, or I the, the people that are writing about it. I would be don't willing to, to stake, but a it lot feels of... so. My point is that it feels like an adult film with those scenes cut out whereas i would be willing to stake money that this was never shot as a hardcore film which i believe totally so i think maybe when he wrote the script and came up with the idea he first intended it to be a hardcore film but the producer he worked with who was mob connected like so many producers working in hardcore cinema in the early 70s I think said maybe this could make money if you put it on this sort of horror film circuit as well. And the reason that I don't think it's a hardcore film or was ever shot as a hardcore film is because Damiano, especially in this period, tended to use a lot of the same cast in his films. And none of the actors involved in this really went on to do anything. And we can talk about this more as we go on. I was going to say, one of the actors went on to do something unfortunate, well, but and some not of, some acting of them, related. Yeah, some of them were involved with low-budget horror films, but we, we could talk about that later. My Sort of my point is, none of these people are, are involved with making hardcore films. So Absolutely. I, I think it's just h- hard to believe that he would hire these sort of non-professional actors who didn't make porn films and then convince them to shoot a porn film. Like the only reason, one of the only reasons uh, like I say that it definitely feels like that is um, there are scenes which feel like they're leading up to sex or involve sex. And then they kind of cut away from where traditionally in a film, an adult film, you would expect to see that. But also the cinematographer, Joao Fernandez. Oh, yes. I love him. He worked with uh, Damiano on Deep Throat, Devil and Miss Jones, and a number of other adult films. So to my mind, it's conceivable that it could have started at some point in the gestation period as an adult film and then moved into something else. But watching it, you get the sense that like it could have been that. And maybe, I don't want to say it would be better if it was that, but it feels like those elements are missing. Yeah, my By the way, we, we, we've totally missed the point of is this or is this not a goth movie? We haven't even oh, started it, introduced it. It yet. is. We're just talking about like the porn elements right well, now. Well, so. Even though it's a non porn film. Yeah, I, I think that 
it feels like it should be a porn film because that's his sort of style of filmmaking. And there are these scenes where there are natural segues into sex scenes. And the scratching and the blood drinking. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I love this movie so much. But wait. So you mentioned <laughs> Fernandez, who's the cinematographer. Who's and wonderful and has done a number of wonderful films. Yeah. I, I think he's Both somebody, adult and non-adult. Definitely somebody who doesn't get enough credit. And I think there's this really unfortunate idea that, you know, if you made hardcore films, whether as a cast or crew member, you could never do anything else. And this man has the most fascinating career. He I worked mean, with my boy Joe Zito on multiple films. The Prowler, sure Invasion did. USA, sure Red did. Scorpion, Red fucking Scorpion. The best anti-Soviet yeah. propaganda film ever. Well, and he did mainstream stuff like Children of the Corn, Friday, Friday the, 13th. the 13th, Final Chapter. He also did stuff like uh, Hollywood Vice Squad. Which is um, a lot of fun. Carrie Fisher's great in it. So much fun. Not the Vice Squad you were probably thinking of, but also a fun Vice Squad. Yes, it's not... I mean... Wingshauser, ball balls to the wall crazy. It's any not movie that. without Wingshauser isn't as good as a movie with Wingshauser, but it's still fun. And... You know, like like you said, he did work on a lot of porn films. Like he was almost Damiano's exclusive cinematographer during this period, but he also worked on things like Through the Looking Glass, which <laughs> if we ever do any full on hardcore films, it's gonna have to be that one because it's probably the most terrifying, fucked up movie I've ever seen. So this is actually since you mentioned that, it's a good thing to bring up. I remember seeing online there's a review out there for Abel Ferreira's Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy. And um, the review isn't like wholly negative, but it has this idea, the reviewer has this idea that Ferreira was never a director with a distinct marker like throughout his career. He didn't have that like distinct identifiers. And, wrong. and he used the phrase, I forget what the exact phrase was, but it was something like elevated fantasies in an adult future. So he was basically saying elevated porn. Sure. And my thing is, like, when you see movies like the one you just mentioned, it was clear in that era there were, like, adult films that were art. And there yeah. still are to some extent today. They're harder to find because that's not really the purpose of what adult films serve, uh, adult films serve today. There are a number of people working in the industry who definitely make art. But, like, this sure. idea that adult films can't be art is something that, is stupid, is stupid and wrong. And I mean, I'm biased because didn't you contribute to the uh, Abel Ferreira desk? I did. I did the commentary track. And plug, thanks. Butt plug. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. There are no butt plugs in Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy, though. But that film actually, I think, has something in common with Through the Looking Glass and with Legacy of Satan, in that they're very kind of Euro horror influenced. And they follow these kind of tormented women who have these strange kind of sexual fantasies. And and there's a conflict over that. They're trying to work through those as the film progresses. Yes. And okay, but wait, before we move on to what the plot of the the plot okay. the plot of this movie doesn't even matter. So I think there it's is fine. no <laughs> plot to this movie. It's like it's a series of vignettes. Well, so before we move on from Fernandez, 
when I was looking up his career, he made all of these 90s made-for-TV thrillers and horror movies that I've never seen that we're going to have to track down, including, oh, wow. including one called Seduced by Evil, where the plot description is basically a warlock from New Mexico convinces a single working mother, played by Suzanne Summers, to become, <laughs> to become his lover. A warlock from New Mexico. Okay. So if anyone has that or things like Deconstructing Sarah or When the Dark Man Calls, I need to see... <laughs> when the Dark Man Calls? Is it a Dark Man sequel? I, I hope so. But I need to see all of these movies now. They have awesome titles, I have to say. And I think he's part of what makes Legacy of Satan so wonderful to me because it is just an absolutely beautiful film there are definitely one of the, so there are many criticisms i could have of this film but one You're of wrong. the things okay <laughs> uh one of the things i would compliment about it is um the stage design the cinematography specifically there's uh, interesting use of texture at various points throughout the film um later in the film there's a moment where we see dr moldavo is that his name yeah which, that's a name. <laughs> we'll get there in and, a minute. And uh, Maya, the heroine or anti-heroine, whatever you want to call her, they're sitting on a bed and you see a pink veil in front of the screen as they're having the discussion and mid-speech it gets pulled away. So it feels like this odd like art film moment that you wouldn't see in yeah. a horror film or something that you would expect to see in Euro horror where there was an emphasis on cinematography and mood and texture and things like that. Yeah, and he definitely does similar work on Middleton's Through the Looking Glass, which is basically a gothic horror incest hardcore movie. But Well, that's coming up on the podcast soon. Yeah, it has to. I mean, it's really our You obligation. sold me on that description. Oh, it's so good. Although um, I have seen it, so. But I think with this, there's some really wonderful kind of Mario Bava-like moments. Jess Franco, I would say, as well. Yeah, and John Rolland. Absolutely. So many babes in nightgowns. And while there's not really any actual nudity, there's so much side boob in this movie. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> it is a surprisingly tame movie for a movie that's clearly influenced by Euro horror of the era. So like and the violence by a hardcore director. Yeah. There, there's no sex whatsoever. The violence happens in cutaways or off screen. You really, the only stuff that you see that's horrific are like mutated or deformed faces, which are totally inexplicable. There's well, one and sex it's like scene. Pancake stuff. There really isn't. It's, it's like, it's sort of implied. Happens. I mean, so it has one of the best lines of the movie where she puts his hand on her crotch yes. and says, feel the warmth. Yeah. And then she says, take it away. <laughs> get so, it. No, she says, get it out of me. <laughs> we will get to that momentarily, but I think we should begin by first introducing the rules and then oh, getting right. into the plot such that there is a plot. Okay. So we're not going to keep rehashing this. If you want to know why we have these rules, you have to listen to episode one, but there are three rules for being goth, which are number one, embrace the darkness. <laughs> rule two <laughs> and kill your fear and rule three live for death. Okay. So with that in mind, why don't you try to describe the plot of this movie? I can totally describe the plot of this movie. Well, that's more this than I can do. This is basically my job as a Euro horror film critic is describing movies that don't have real plots. So I, I feel okay w about it. Basically, there's this satanic cult 
And the movie opens with this incredibly gorgeous satanic ritual, except instead of calling him Satan, they call him Lord Rakesh for no fucking apparent reason that I'm not I can sure discern. what that means myself. Like I said, lots of side boob, lots of babes in nightgowns. Satanism mixed with like weird 70s new age beliefs. There's lots of um, yeah. crescent moons and it's, stuff that you wouldn't normally associate with Satanism then or now. Yeah, it's, um, but it's stuff very that's like witchy age or, of Aquarius kind of yeah. thing. Um, but so basically the cult says, okay, we, we need a new queen to promise to Lord Rakesh. And for whatever reason, they decide that this woman named Maya has to be their queen. Our hero. Yes. Or something. She, yeah. I, if we could call her that. But so Dr. Moldavo, who... Dr. Moldavo. <laughs> who is the de facto leader of this cult, I think sees a picture of Maya and is determined that she's going to become the, you know, reincarnated queen. Or Is Dr. Moldavo the leader of the cult because they have the high priestess? And, and the high priestess gives a lot more orders than Dr. Moldavo. He just kind of like wanders in and out of the cult. <laughs> and Wearing does an stuff. ascot. <laughs> and some crazy hair and a frilly shirt. Lots and he's, of turtleneck. He's very 70s. But he's never, like, they never explicitly say who is leading the cult. He's, I guess, the de facto leader, but the yeah. priestess is, like, the one who's actually leading She's, everybody. like, the spiritual leader. He's the sort of earthly leader. I'm making all of this up. Sure. You have to watch and figure it out for yourself. But, Please keep describing but, the plot. <laughs> but basically... They decide that they have to have this woman named Maya, who is in a pretty sexless marriage to her husband, Arthur, who puts up with some shit throughout the course of the movie. And they basically start to sort of possess Maya so that she has these kind of dual personalities where, one, she's very sort of meek and defenseless. She So the movie definitely is sort of riding on the coattails of something like Rosemary's Baby. Absolutely. She's that sort of defenseless little girl housewife, like virginal housewife type. Is Arthur the husband or is it George? I thought Arthur was the husband. I oh no, George's. no. You're right. George is the husband and Arthur is their their good friend who is Slash a cult member. Love interest. Yeah, it's, it's kind it's of weird. It's a little vague, but Arthur is the cult member who... And George is the vanilla husband. Yes. George is the poor bastard who puts up with his wife being a fucking crazy person. To be fair, he's very, very boring. And I think that would drive any woman crazy. And not like crazy for him. So just boring. crazy. Because yes. they have, as you said, a sexless marriage where once we get to a sex scene and she says, feel the warmth. She's basically <laughs> trying to get him to fuck me. the demons out of her. Yeah, and he, he just won't. won't do it because he's a wimp. So then she attacks him, but that's a, that's a whole other but thing. We're, we're getting there. Yeah. So. so basically, the plot is this cult wants a new satanic queen. They decide that it's this very milk toast woman, and then milk toast woman starts to become possessed by their rituals and turns into this sort of blood worshiping crazy person. Uh, yeah, and that's th one way to so describe it. The the movie. I think is very confused about whether it wants to be about a satanic cult or whether it's about some sort of vampiric cult. Like if you like Jean Rollin films from the early to mid seventies, you will love legacy of Satan. All 15 of you. Yes. Hey, <laughs> is that including me or 15 other people? You and the other people who contributed to the Jean Rollin book. 
That's not very nice. But he has a fan base. I'm just being a dickhead. I know. But so they sort of kidnap her and George tries to save the day with a fucking sword. A glowing sword. <laughs> a glowing sword. But let's jump back into the beginning because it has some interesting things going on. It has probably one of the best lines in the movie. Here comes the booze. Here comes the booze. That is like... It's so 70s. It is. You feel like they're about to go to a swingers party or like the three people in the room are about to have sex just because of that. And that's one of the things I love so much about this movie is there's this constant anticipation or sense that it's going somewhere that it never actually takes you no um it also has that scene in the beginning where they repeat the word obstinate and own reasons from two different angles they just keep the one character i believe george is calling is no george is being called obstinate right i think so and they do it and then they repeat the scene from a different angle and you're sitting there watching it like wondering why is this happening to me but knowing like some of his other films, I feel like it's also intentional, maybe to add a dreamlike quality or set something up. I don't want to believe it's ineptitude. Yeah, no. I feel like it's definitely intentional. I, I think, well, so this is pretty early in his career, and he, he started making films in the late 60s, so I feel like this was one of, it was possibly his first really s- serious in tone film. So I don't think it was ineptitude, but I I do think elements like that you either it's either for you or it's not. Like right. everything here that's happening clearly is I am the target audience. It's one of those things where there are a lot of it's just sort of this constant barrage of surreal dreamlike Weirdness. moments and this Euro cult logic that makes no rational sense in a way that I really love, like monsters showing up for no fucking reason. Right. Uh, But we go from the opening scene where they're sitting there and their friend talks about his interest in the occult. Um, We end up then going to some kind of weird sex party where they're introduced to um, a man in a mustache and turtleneck and black boots who looks like David Tibet from current 93 (laughs) And probably is David Tibet from Current 93. I would so like to believe that it is. Over that, we get probably my favorite element in the music. And this is present in the beginning, too, with the opening with the cult. Is the music in the movie, which is like a mixture of like hard techno and Patrick Cowley-like it's adult amazing. film music. It's amazing. It's like, a, I can't describe it as a score so much as like a Moog freakout. Because yes. it's one of the hardest uh, synth tracks i've heard in any 70s movie you didn't you didn't hear music like this until much later which is so strange but so wonderful i mean so i think i maybe have mentioned this in past episodes but i'm obsessed with always having the subtitles on and i did this too the amazon prime whoever does their subtitles or whatever I don't even know if it's some sort of program. But deserves a raise is what they need. Deserves a fucking raise. So the very first subtitle you see when you start this movie is brooding synth music, yeah. which I feel like sums up the score pretty well. It's I think one of my favorite so weird um, Amazon subtitles, I was watching the movie Superstition from 1982. I love the other that night, movie. And there's a scene where, and I'm going to spoil this for you right now, so you better shut it off if you don't want to hear. A child dies and you see blood dripping on milk and it says flesh squelches which is one of the most oddly specific ways of describing someone getting murdered i have ever seen no and that's all of the amazon subtitles 
are yep. they have weirdly specific adjectives that make me feel like a real person is writing them or at least checking them. A failed English major who just somehow fell into this and they're just not monitoring what they're doing. Which, so they just throw in all of the weird adjectives that can Whoever find. you are, if you're listening, keep up the good work. It has brought me hours of joy. But then we get into um, the weird party where you get the sense, and we mentioned this earlier, that this was an in-between period for Satanism because it's a mixture of like hippies and evil aristocrats. So traditionally, Satanists were always kind of shown as like a cabal of evil rich people or a society outside of normal culture that was trying to take over. And now we're getting into the period where they're hippies yeah. And we're kind of transitioning out of that at the same time because there's a mixture of the two in this. Yeah, it is sort of a weird combination because if you think about the Euro horror satanic movies from the period, it almost, and especially the British films, like really anything like Jean Rollins, who I mentioned earlier, but most of them involve like Satan's Slave is a great example yet another Vinegar Syndrome release that I was involved in so I'm biased just get a subscription but to Vinegar Syndrome yeah, Syndrome do yourself Syndrome. a favor whatever um, they for the most part all involve these sort of aristo- demented aristocrats who, I mean rich people are evil well yes as as we know but but I don't think it's fair to say Satanists are rich people because Satanists are cool some of the time and rich people are never cool well, and it's funny because I I think, like you said, this movie does sort of point out that transition where it's... Oh, absolutely. They're not just, you know, this sort of demented, inbred aristocrat on his estate kidnapping people. <laughs> <laughs> but it's basically a bunch of liberals and hippies who want... Mixed in with the aristocrat yeah. inbred sister fuckers or something. <laughs> That's one way to put it. You know, I mean, that's kind of what they were before. There was always, like, that weird element to it. And here, it's slowly moving out of that until later in the decade when it gets even more bizarre and tied to the counterculture. Sure, and I think... So this was screened with Andy Milligan's blood, which I love Andy Milligan, but another acquired taste. Weren't they just put out together on a disc a few years ago? They were, but they were put out by Code Red, and it, Ooh, that I, says it right there. I'm pretty sure the disc is highly out of print, and hopefully Legacy of Satan will get a, a release, a proper Blu-ray release sometime in the future. But they go weirdly well together because I think they both use these like gothic themes. It's sort of like low-budget gothic horror. I mean, yeah, this was Milligan's period for doing those type of movies before Absolutely. he moved into like the trashy 80s stuff. Yeah, it's all these sort of insane families who live in these houses and everyone's just demented. And there's definitely some of that in Legacy of Satan because for at least the second half of the film, Maya and George wind up at the kind of satanic compound, for lack of a better definition. I'd call it a party. Uh, it's not really an orgy. I mean, I think it's, we're supposed to believe that it's an orgy, but there's no sex, so... It's sort of a blood orgy, which, speaking of, there's... I'm, I'm trying to remember what it is, but there's this really, really amazing character name, uh, the Blonde Blood Farm. Who we need to talk about later for other reasons, <laughs> yes. um, but which that... will be depressing, but... No, you know. but, but I feel like that's sort of what he does here, is he kind of... Archetypes. Swaps out. There's not, like, they're not people. 
Yeah, he he also swaps out this idea of hardcore sex or even swingers and sex clubs with this kind of vampire cult. Like, they're all humans. They're not undead. But they just sort of, like, chill out drinking blood from a chalice. <laughs> which they get by poking people's necks with their crescent moon necklaces. Yeah, which is why this movie is goth. Sure. So, but um, nightgowns aside. After we get from the party, we end up with Maya back at home with George, and they're in the bed, but there's cross-cutting between a sex ritual targeting Maya and Maya finally experiencing some pleasure in her life while she's sleeping, which is actually an interesting cross-cutting between the two. It's an interesting use of editing. Yeah, it's a great scene, and I think he... I mean, I love Damiano as a director, and I think he's extremely talented. I mean... Something later on, like Skin Flicks, which he made in 78 or 79, has a lot of these really beautiful sequences, not only with like interesting camera angles and shots, but also intercutting. And so I think this is sort of an early example of that. But the next morning involves some of the greatest dialogue ever. Well, it's not even the next morning so much as she wakes up in the middle of the dream. And uh, because... George is a goddamn vanilla bastard and no woman will ever experience pleasure in her in his bed. He he reassures her that everything is safe now because she's not orgasming. Satan's yeah. evil because he's giving out orgasms to women in this movie. Yeah, it's just kind of tragic, but she she, she comes on to him and she she delivers him. the best line in the movie which we're going to play right now. I was somewhere else. And George refuses to touch his own wife. Which I just... So, in a way, this reminds me a little bit of uh, the Romero film, uh, Season of the Witch. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Which... Where witchiness or vampirism is kind of connected to female sexuality and desire. Sure. If you haven't seen that film, which is a film I particularly dislike, but know Disagree. that many people love it. It's sort of this repressed, bored, frustrated housewife gives kind of an outlet to all this kind of sexual tension by experimenting with witchcraft and hanging out with these people who are swingers and so on and so forth. And all of the cool and fun people in the world. Yes. So I think this is in sort of a similar territory as that, but I have to disagree. I think the best line in the whole film does happen the next morning, which is when they're sitting at the kitchen table with a cherry pie <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. So that scene is great in particular because she just keeps gaslighting George the entire oh, time. It's amazing. And the pie scene, which we will also cut in right now, is amazing. Honey, I want to know what's wrong. You, you haven't said anything to me all day. For the love of God, will you please tell me what you're thinking? <laughs> it's insane. What's insane? What I'm thinking. Well, what are you thinking about? Cherry pie. All right. 
What are you thinking about cherry pie? It looks like blood. Don't you think it looks like blood? No, I think it looks like cherry pie. My favorite part is not only that she has this very almost like David Lynch moment where it's, you know, look at this blood cherry pie, but then blames it on George and is like, look what you made me do. You made me cut myself and now you have to lick the blood off of me. (laughs) If this was the music video for Warren's cherry pie, it would have been a million times better. I mean, I actually kind of like that video because it's so ridiculous, but I agree. But this scene is great in particular because of the weird association it draws between cherry pie and blood, which it's a fun dessert. I'm trying to, I I was trying to figure out why they were comparing the two. I think it's more meant to suggest that she's been really impacted by this ritual that was performed the night before and she's starting to become kind of a different person and she sees blood and violence as being more appealing and so when she looks down and sees this kind of dark red fruit filling her mind immediately goes to blood and then she makes him drink her blood fucking george and he he does it uh, unwillingly but he does it because he has no spine he is the most milk toast character i mean i guess part of the movie it's like the conflict for george is building up to the point when he will stand up for both himself and his wife But it's weird to get to that point because he is the biggest doormat you will ever see. And this scene in particular is great because, as I said, she just keeps gaslighting him over and over and over regarding, like, anything he says. She will contradict and he'll just be like, okay. Yeah, he's so defeated, which I can't think of other male characters in Damiano films that are this extreme. I mean, usually his main male characters are played by people like Harry Reams and Jamie Gillis, who would never in a million years be <laughs> this milk toast. This like lame. And uh, I, I can't say whipped because it's like every character he's just submissive to in general. So it's not even just the relationship with his well, wife. Well, and you can't even say he's whipped because it's not like he's getting any pussy for the pussy whipping. He doesn't yeah. want it. Yep. Yeah, nope. So from here, so they're, they're the perfectly matched. The conflict in this scene is Maya wants to go to a party and George doesn't. And then he agrees to because she just forces him. And they end up there. It's a costume party. Um, they're introduced to a bunch of weirdos walking in and they get in costumes. Hers is very sexy, very goth with the uh, eye makeup, which reminded yeah. me of like Susie Sue and other people later on. But George is a clown. He's a clown. He's a literal <laughs> clown. And he's okay with that. I feel like that pretty much sums up George. And Yeah, it's one of those things where everything about him, he's just the worst, blandest <laughs> character you could be, and he's just fine with it. Yeah, and there, so there are definitely, you know, moments of comic relief because of things yeah. like that and because of how ridiculous the satanic vampiric cult is. I mean, Dr. Moldavo in particular is he he's a work of art. You, <laughs> you'd need to see him to believe it. But then when they're, you know, in the costume room getting dressed, David Tibet walks in and serves them wine, which is not suspicious at all. And I would not be worried about drinking it from a weird place full of strangers and it turns out no. they should have been because obviously when David Tibet serves you wine, it's something's going to be 
weird about it. <laughs> so they have a weird freakout scene, and this is really where I realize this movie needs to be experienced on acid because it's the only way you can understand what's happening. Or on mushrooms, Something which is how I first saw it. Be- of course. <laughs> I love mushrooms. But it's, I think, because the score is so intense and the colors and the cinematography are so intense, if you are someone who enjoys hallucinogens or even edibles... That score, though. Yeah. Man, it's I, something. It's something where you, you need it to be... Like, I would love the opportunity to see this in a theater. I don't know how many surviving 35-millimeter prints there are. I mean, the version that's available for free on Prime looks good. I would advise being better. careful watching it on Prime because I had streaming issues no matter where I was in my house. And I don't know if it was the Prime version or what. Oh, I didn't have that problem at all. I was streaming it to, um, I use Chrome and I was streaming it through Chromecast and it kept disconnecting. And I never really have that problem with other movies. So I don't know if it was just this movie or something that was happening The universe trying today. to cut you some slack and not make you watch Legacy of Satan. I made it to the <laughs> end. I did. But... I'm surprised that some of the characters in this movie also made it to the end. Like George, for example. Yeah, it's it's one of those movies where if you are expecting a lot of sex or a lot of nudity, which the movie seems to say, hey, this is about to happen, it never happens. And no. likewise, if you're expecting there to be lots of crazy violence... There's just also sort not. of a lot of casual what I would what I would call casual blood drinking. But there's no like arterial spray throats get slit but we go to a cutaway yeah throats get slit in kind of a passive this isn't a big deal kind of way the only scene that's like (laughs) genuinely violent and kind of sticks to it is towards the end with the broken glass the mirror yes which is a great scene yeah it's really beautiful and like i said it it has these strange moments where characters dressed as monsters appear so that happens That happens technically, I don't want to say technically, it happens in a scene prior to them showing up at the party where Maya gets assaulted by a demon, yep. and then she sees a painting crying blood, and you get this weird surreal imagery where th- this thing's happening to her, and then we cut to the painting, and it's a weird kind of trans, uh, transition. Which is why you should probably watch it on drugs, well, is what I'm saying. Lots of drugs. Maybe mix them if you can. <laughs> And that'll help make sense of Maybe David Tibet will bring you a sort of wine, blood, drug cocktail. Because lily wine full of psychedelics or whatever he probably would serve somebody. Exactly. But so it's like the plot doesn't make sense. If, if you've seen any Euro horror movies, like the plot is the least important part. It's usually the imagery that they're more concerned with. And the atmosphere. The mood. And, yeah. I mean, I think this would make a great double feature with something like Jess Franco's Nightmares Come at Night, which is one of my favorite of his films. And yeah. is another one where it's a sort of beautiful kind of tormented woman winds up at this castle and all sorts of insane things happen. And you're not really sure why they're happening or if they're actually happening. And here, it, it's like it doesn't matter. It's just... Okay, so it doesn't even really end. There's things that don't matter in this movie, obviously, the plot. But then there are things that do, like the imagery and the dialogue in particular. And we've highlighted some great so lines. But again, I want to stress the dialogue in this movie is amazing. So once they're at the party, Maya ends up with Dr. Moldavo alone in a bedroom. And we're going to play for you what may also be the best 
sequence of any villain describing why he drinks blood. For you see, to live, you must drink life. That fluid which rushes through each of us. That life fluid which exceeds all thirst awakens in me a hunger for the dark, the forbidden. So we get that, and immediately after, which I'm not going to play, I'm just going to say, he talks about the uh, demons and says, the air is filled with demons, charged with demons. Like, this whole sequence is the reason you need to watch the movie, because Dr. Moldavo's delivery of the line, so the actor who plays Dr. Moldavo, I forget his name. Uh, The actor who plays him is really the John Francis? Yeah, John Francis, who is really the only experienced actor in this film. Only one to go on and do anything. He played Death in Strange Days and and other bit parts. He's in a shitload of television. He's in things like Get Smart. But his delivery of lines in this movie is so over the top. It's amazing. So good. So that sequence in particular is great because of the dialogue. And I mentioned earlier the use of... uh, texture with um, Fernandez's camera work where this is the scene specifically where you see the veil being pulled back in the middle of the speech and it's an interesting setup for the shot yeah I think my favorite sequence which I'm pretty sure I posted this on Instagram the first time I saw the movie is this (laughs) no because I was so like how have I never seen this movie why has no one pointed this out to me there's this really beautiful moment where she gets taken back to their satanic lair and is out of her fucking mind standing in this hallway. Is that after this sequence? Yes. Okay. It's it's so gorgeous. But it's one, so I firmly believe that movies like this and like Andy Milligan's films and like Jean Rollins' films benefit from having actors with little to no experience because it makes it seem even more surreal. Yes, they don't know the conventions of acting, or if they're younger actors, I think this was early in Francis's career, um, they haven't been formally trained. So they'll be willing to do things, or they will do things that break rules, or they'll deliver lines in ways that are flat, where an actor or someone who's trained as an actor might recognize that delivery is not Yeah, or try to make it sound more natural, and here, in this movie, nothing is natural. No, even the one actor who is trained, uh, Moldavo, John Francis. No, let's just call him Moldavo. Moldavo. (laughs) Dr. Moldavo is his name now. His performance is so over the top. I don't know if he's clearly hamming it up, but he's swinging for the fences. Because he was this sort of lesser known character actor in 70s and 80s television, I think he knew that he was hamming it up on some level. Well, this was early in his career, like early enough that maybe not. That's why I'm a little... I don't want to say he was purposely trying to, you know, go weird and over the top, but it's possible. But whether he meant to or not, congratulations. Maybe Damiano was just like, have fun. Just well, say shit that doesn't make sense and make th- it this not make even more sense. <laughs> this movie also provides some great direction if you are a goth dude who wants to tell a woman that you'd like to bang her, but you want to use some other more occult sounding phrase because it's all of his dialogue is basically I want to have sex with you. Airy turn of phrases and say stuff like the air is charged with demons. The air is charged with (laughs) demons or, you know, how we must drink the life fluid because 
the life fluid exceeds all thirst awakens in me a hunger for the dark or something like that. I, I'm not quoting it properly. T- but. Telling somebody that they awaken in you a hunger for the dark is like the most goth pickup line that has ever happened. And to be fair, like some of the costumes, specifically the guy who looks like David Tibet, that's something I would see goth dudes probably wearing today. Maybe not so much the uh, crescent moon necklace. That's but what you would be wearing. The tur- <laughs> I, I like turtlenecks. What can I say? But I don't tuck my pants into my boots. That's the distinction I make. Yeah, that's a little weird. (laughs) (laughs) So this is where they end up um, with the satanic cult. Maya's there and George rushes in with a glowing fucking sword. Well, he gets the sword from this character. I I wasn't paying attention partially. By this point, I was kind of in a uh, coma. So I was trying to figure out when he shows up with the sword, I was like, when did he turn into He-Man? Yeah, so... To be fair, this movie is a little over an hour, but... I think it's like 68 minutes. Yeah, but it puts you into this like mental time loop where you don't know what's happening. You don't but, know if it's so, 1972 or 1995 or 2019. Pretty much. But so because I've seen it a few times now... How? I love this movie so much. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just like, how? Well, so... To answer your question about the glowing sword. Yeah, let's start there and then work There's backwards. this cult member named Aurelia who is in love with Dr. Moldavo and is Why jealous. She doesn't want Maya to come into the cult and change things. She doesn't want Maya to take Dr. Moldavo away from her. So she's the one who sort of becomes George's ally and gi- I guess gives him this sword. <laughs> I guess I didn't realize because they were humans. I didn't think there was anything supernatural in this movie until I saw a glowing sword, at which point I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. I mean, it's like if you're going to have people drinking blood and cutting themselves over cherry pies, like why not also have a glowing sword? (laughs) Why not? It was so restrained up until that point too. (laughs) Sorry. I'm being facetious there. (laughs) This movie, nothing about this movie is restrained. No, and it it just, it really, you have to see it and you have to hear this brooding synth score to to believe what's happening. But then we get, so Dr. Moldavo gets cut with the sword and somehow his face begins mutating because of this. Is that correct? Yeah, and also somehow George is attacked and his face starts mutating or... Okay, I missed that entirely. (laughs) Maybe I, I think there's a point where I confuse, so... They do look similar, I'll give you that. They they look they have this sort of generic seventies white dude look. So it could kinda like shaggy blonde hair, yes. indes- nondescript face. They they both are sort of like Fred from Scooby Doo. Although one of them is wearing a frilly shirt and one of them is George. So maybe nothing happens to George, but it's like I've I know Moldavo more... definitely his face gets cut and begins to like transform. Yes. And you get like weird pancake batter plastered on it for effects sure and i I think it's confusing because people randomly like i said earlier turn into monsters and then and then don't anymore for some reason yeah it's it at the end moldavo's face is definitely all kinds of messed up in a way where like if i hit you in the face with a broadsword right now your face would just be cut in half but why would you do that to me but i'm using it as an example I don't think they really explain why Moldavo's face mutates. Uh, I mean, they don't explain a lot in this movie, to be fair. Sure, I assume he just... Well, so there one thing I don't think we mentioned. There's this ridiculous line of dialogue in the beginning of the movie where they talk about how they one can... One line of ridiculous dialogue? 
All right. <laughs> Listen. It basically they say something along the lines of they can only add a new member to the cult once every thousand years. Okay, I missed so, that. So, oh well. yeah, this is in Holy the first. Shit. This is in the first like five minutes of the film. So I guess you're meant to believe that they've all just been chilling, drinking blood, wearing ascots for a thousand years, and now that the stars are in alignment, so they're not human. I think are maybe, they vampires? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> we Just watched the same movie. Trying to clear it up here. So they don't have fangs and they don't do any kind of like overt. Like they, they walk in the daylight. They appear to be human. But maybe it's something like the absolutely wonderful Mary, Mary, Bloody Mary, the Moctezuma film. Yeah. Where she can't survive without drinking blood and starts to get really sick if she doesn't have it. I mean, the primary method for blood drinking in this movie is either scratching people or stabbing them with crescent moon necklaces. So... Yeah, and I mean, in Roland's fascination, it's similar. Like, they're humans who drink blood, and they drink blood by True. having to stab someone and drink out of a cup. I think and I prefer that movie to this movie, though. I mean, that movie is a masterpiece. It is. I just happen to love this one. Um, Warts and all. But then we get to the end, Moldava, with his face mutating, delivers a weird, like, soliloquy. I don't know how to phrase it properly. He just mumbles at the camera with... Um, Maya standing there staring at him. Is it Moldava or is it George? I think it's Moldava. Okay. Because by that point, Maya is fully evil. Yes. And so it's like George tries to save the day, but... She I, becomes a cult member anyway yeah. because she is not going back to that barren bed. No, I mean, the more power to her. If Feel I could, the warmth. Yes, if I could hang out in nightgowns, drinking blood out of chalices all day rather than be stuck you're living your best life yeah she she learns how to live her best life by the end of the movie although you don't necessarily get the sense that moldavo is going to survive the sword to the face no i mean he's kind of in a bed dying speaking his dying words to her his dying gibberish yeah his dying <laughs> gibberish it's really weird and then it's kind of like um a freeze frame on her face to finish the film with a title card. And she just looks stressed out. She looks, yeah, she looks angry, confused, whatever. Although I have to say, I love those titles. The, yeah. They are so beautiful. So basically, if you hate me and don't watch this movie, the way that he does the title, the, the, the end title card at the end of the film and the way he does the credits in the beginning is it looks like it's this sort of psychedelic, like they wave in and out and then are sort of like set in this kind of very early 70s font. They're so beautiful. No, I mean, so there's a lot of things about the film to like and the typography, the music, the weird dialogue. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are likable about this movie, even if it doesn't necessarily add up to a cohesive whole for me. Well, and that's why I would not necessarily advise people against watching it. I would just caution them when they're going in. <laughs> Take a breath. Take a pill. <laughs> but then, so since we're at the end of the movie and we're into the credits, um, there was something in researching this film that I found fascinating, not necessarily Sad. involving the film itself, but about one of the actresses who plays the blonde blood farm, whatever that means. Which is... One of my favorite things about 70s porn is that 
they often have hilarious character names in the credits. And yes. like you can find most of this if you look it up on IMDb. But these are serious names most of the time. It's not today where someone gets well, like, no, you know, like, Dr. Uh, Romero Carpenter is their name or something stupid like that. Sure. It like if you look at Jamie Gillis's IMDb credits, his character so, like he has a lot of like normal dude names, but he also has some hilarious names and the best is George Payne, who I can't in good conscience recommend any George Payne films because he's in all <laughs> these like late 70s roughies like they're basically rape films so don't watch them but look at his character names which are the there best and so I I feel like blonde bl- well I feel like blonde blood farm comes from that sort of porn character naming tradition right but the actress who played the blo- blonde blood farm would go on to become famous for something else her name was Krista Helm, and three years after this movie, she was murdered in West Hollywood. She was stabbed 30 times and bludgeoned. Which and is pretty intense. Because the circumstances around her death, apparently, are still up in the air. She allegedly um, had had relationships with like the uh, Shah of Iran and Mick Jagger. But in the course of doing this, recorded um, sex tapes and wrote a sex diary, sex diary with names of famous people in it. Yeah, I want to say she dated Warren Beatty for a while, too. Beatty was another name that came up. So allegedly her death was tied to the weird diary that she put in there, um, yeah, the sex tapes sad. that she had recorded. And the weirder part was like the list of people who were suspects in her death. So at the time of her death, she was recording a disco album because it was the 70s and everybody would. Like you do. And one of the suspects was her backup singer, who also may allegedly have been her lesbian lover, although Helm denied ever being bisexual or um, gay. So that was one of the suspects um, in the idea that it was a lover's quarrel or something like that. Yeah, I mean, stabbing somebody 30 times and bludgeoning them seems... Very personal and very angry. So then the second suspect was a West Hollywood drug dealer, which I guess you would expect in a murder case. Not personal. But then the third one, Paulie Walnuts from fucking The Sopranos. (laughs) Paulie Walnuts is one of the suspects in this woman's murder. When I I was reading it, and I want to give a shout out to the podcast Hollywood Land Uncovered for making this information public when i saw that i was just like what the fuck (laughs) yeah i mean that's one of the sort of amazing things about these low budget movies is they're filled with interesting backstories and people with stein the director who also got murdered in hollywood which is crazy so you have all of these weird like true crime stories tied into the films and in some cases are more interesting than the films themselves yeah I wish, like, in another life, I would be doing my own version of that A.J. Benza show, which is, like, my favorite show ever. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the stories behind movies can sometimes be more interesting than the movies themselves. The uh, cruising killer who was in The Oh, The Bag Murderer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff is just... It's like you couldn't... No matter how many books you could get Kenneth Anger to write, you still can't make some of this shit up. It's so insane. It can't be any sleazier than real life. No. This being one of those cases where like everything about um, Helms' murder is kind of terrible and awful. Yeah, and it's a shame because it seemed like she was 
on some sort of trajectory, like she was in an episode of Wonder Woman, uh, Starsky and Hutch. Let's she was go doing for everything broke. like a young actress would do to set herself up in that era. She was recording a disco album to jump on that train. Although I don't know if we could say that every young actress in that era was keeping a sex diary. Well, <laughs> I don't think most actresses keep a sex diary, and I definitely don't believe most people in that era were recording um, audio recordings of themselves having sex. No, that's definitely kind of weird. So she was definitely like trying to set someone up or yeah. trying to get information. The circumstances around her death are very weird. So it's something I would definitely, it behooves you to uh, look her up in the circumstances of her death. Specifically look up that podcast, Hollywood Land Uncovered. It's a great episode. Yeah, I mean, it's such a shame. But it's it's also weird how the movie does have some connection to low-budget horror. I mean, like I said, it was it was shown as a double feature with Andy Milligan's Blood. It also weirdly was shown with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which as a double feature, this would make absolutely no sense. No sense. Yeah. But I mean, so the violence in that movie is mostly implied as well, even though people remember it as being worse than it is. It's always happening in cutaways, but that's literally the only thing I can say is similar to this movie. Yeah, I guess they both have similarly unnerving and unexpected scores. Deformities, facial deformities. Yeah, but there's really no connection. Um, yeah, nothing. And that's that movie is a much better movie, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, I can't argue that. But um, Aurelia, who we mentioned earlier, was played by this lady named Ann Paul, who was not an actress, but a makeup artist who worked on Last House of the Left and Alice Sweet Alice. Well, there's an interesting connection, yeah, because so those are both great films. They are both great films. And, side note, both of those films were made by directors who also made porn films. So you have this kind of interesting... Yeah, I don't think most people know that about Wes Craven, do they? Well, I feel like it's sort of come out a little bit more now. Right. But I mean, that's one of those things where we were talking earlier about Damiano trying to move into horror. A lot of horror directors started off either working in like low budget yeah. B-movie mills like uh, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, making a horror movie and moving on to something more serious or directors like Wes Craven and Abel Ferreira starting off in porn and then moving into something slightly more reputable, but still disreputable in making horror features. Sure, and it's while we're on this subject, uh, Fernandez actually worked on this movie that I just watched for the first time yesterday called The Nesting. Oh, which, yes, great. Well, which is directed by Armand Weston, and yep. like Damiano, Armand Weston primarily made porn films and just sort of did this like one-off horror movie. So yeah, that seemed to be the uh, career trajectory for horror directors or people trying to move out of adult films in the 70s and 80s. You start making those movies because you know how to work on a tight budget. You can then move into sure. something like horror where budgeting, the budgets can be lower because the audience isn't expecting, you know, professional actors or, you know, big over the top action set pieces. So you could do yeah. that, move into that. But even when you did that, you still kind of got stuck. Like Craven got stuck as a horror director for most of his career. He for did sure. things outside of that. Um, Carpenter tried to. You know, directors who started in horror or eventually moved into horror in that era kind of got trapped there. So even like adult films, directors who made adult films were kind of stuck doing those by and large. Horror directors had that same fate. Yeah. And speaking of Craven and still Last House on the Left, uh, one of the cultists is played by this lady named Sandra Peabody. 
who was in Last House on yep. the Left. She's also in Massage Parlor Murders, which never seen that one. I highly recommend the title though. I highly recommend it is on it's another one that I think is streaming for free on Prime and not family friendly, I'm assuming, right? It's pretty sleazy. Who could Surprise. tell by a title like that, you know? <laughs> Uh, and she's also in uh, Case of the Full Moon Murders by Sean Cunningham, which is one of the like Sean Cunningham movies that no one cares about because it's not Friday the 13th. <laughs> also haven't seen that one. I haven't seen a lot of Sean Cunningham besides Friday the 13th and The New Kids. Probably because he's not a good director. I like The New Kids. It's kind of like a weird slasher revenge film. Sure, but you know what I mean. It's He's, he's not one of these sort of like genre auteurs. Even though he probably would like to be. You know, I'm one. sure he thinks he is. Uh, based on the lawsuits surrounding Friday the 13th, he definitely thinks he is. So that was Legacy of Satan. Um, but because this is a goth movie podcast and we are not going to decide if it's goth just yet, we have another portion of the show that we traditionally do where we look at goth music in the era or year that a movie was made. But because this was made in 72, this is a little more difficult because goth rock was not a thing yet. Yeah, and I think this is something that we were going to have to address sooner or later because we're definitely planning to do films from all different decades. and Prior to the 80s when goth yeah. really was a thing. Yeah, so it's like because this came out in 74, most of the albums we're going to be talking about are... Apologies, things. I said 72, 74. Well, it was, it was made in 72, but I feel like everything that I was thinking of in terms of like related music came out in 74, and it's like at some point we're just going to have to talk about music that goth people like that isn't just, isn't like solely goth. Or was an influence on goth bands, yeah. but isn't necessarily overtly goth. Although there is one album on this list that I would say is absolutely goth. And then there's a questionable choice at the very end, which will probably get people angry at us. Maybe Liam will say something. I don't know. <laughs> so the list we made... Um, was a list of albums that were primarily influences on goth. So the term gothic rock, I think, was first used in the late 60s to describe the Doors of all bands. Mm -hmm. And when you think of the Doors, you don't immediately think of that, except for maybe their first album, People Are Strange. I don't know. I I do, I think. No, I absolutely do. Yeah. But when you mention it, people, like, they don't see the immediate connection, um, unless you're talking about a band like Echo and the Bunnymen, who aren't goth, but RB would be what you call goth, goth adjacent. adjacent. Yeah. Uh, like the <laughs> Which key, is the Ray first Manzer time this Ray episode Manzer I've said yeah. it. Rayman Zarek's keyboards, um, yeah. the poetry, the emphasis on poetry from Morrison. 
his persona, and like a lot of it is goth. And or I mean, influenced a God. lot of the songs are have really dark themes. Like the end, which we'll bring up more in a bit, uh, is super violent. And you know, you have things like "Your Lost Little Girl," which is depressing, and was yeah. later covered by Susie and the Banshees. And so. then there were other bands that air the Velvet Underground specifically, who were d- a definite precursor. Definitely, and we will be talking about a member of them momentarily. Two members. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. Never mind. I now see it. So the first album is David Bowie's Diamond Dogs, which I can definitely say Bowie is an influence on goth, specifically through image, uh, music as well, but more so I think image is a factor for him until you get into maybe his later albums. Yeah, I don't know. I think Diamond Dogs is one of the first to have some actual goth music on it, like Chana the Ever-Circling Family. and I mean, there's earlier songs. I would say Life on Mars, you could argue for um, in Disagree. 71. Oh, come on. <laughs> I think that's definitely something you could argue for. You could, but I'm arguing against. Fine. <laughs> so the next album, which is absolutely fucking goth, is Nico's The End. Which is what we meant when we said we'd be talking about two Velvet Underground members because John Cale was really... Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's what I was forgetting. John Cale was really instrumental in producing a lot of Nico's solo records, especially especially the goth ones. But he came out with his own solo album the same year called Fear. And I think John Cale, like I love solo John Cale. And I think he's one of those people who counts as goth adjacent. Like, Oh, absolutely. A lot of his songs are, yeah, his songs Uh, are really dark. The production on his records, you can see how it influenced. Totally. Third album. um, I would say this one's a questionable choice, but I know you're going to argue with me is Roxy music's country life. It's not fucking questionable. Goth adjacent. Fine. So there's a song on there called The Bitter End that is 100% a goth song. The next record is Brian Eno's Here Come the Warm Jets. Bless him. King Crimson, Starless, and uh, Bible Black, which it's on the, it's on the fence. I yeah. can definitely see it in the... Um, the ballady end of things it's with like so, Sisters of Mercy and it's also so I mean I know it's prog rock technically but it's so gloomy and I mean they came out with Red in the same year which is like equally right. gloomy. So the next co- the next choice is the most questionable to my mind, which is Blue Oyster's Cult, Blue Oyster Cult's Secret Treaties. But it has songs hard about rock and metal. I think they're more of an influence on hard rock and metal personally. Sure, but I think there's some crossover. I mean, they have songs about... They have a song called Astrology. Like, it has all these occult themes. They talk about being evil. But you get that in the metal community, too. It has lyrics by Patti Smith, which is the least metal thing ever. And I think think Patti Smith is one of those goth-adjacent figures. Next is Leonard Cohen's New Skin for the Old Ceremony, which... I will say is goth adjacent. Yep, um, I'll fight Smith, anyone uh, who disagrees. Not Patty Smith, sorry. Leonard Cohen is definitely someone who you can say influenced um, some goth music based on his early records especially. Oh, definitely. And I mean, I think he has songs like Who by Fire that sound maybe more full. So to me, and we've we've had this argument, I think possibly on an episode, but definitely off the air where I don't think Nick Cave is totally goth. I think we had this argument our last episode. I know. I remember right. But I think it's the same thing for me with Leonard Cohen where I don't think Leonard Cohen is actually goth. I think he is 
sad, no, I, I sad would definitely bastard not music. Call Leonard Cohen goth. Although some of his stuff, like I think Sisters of Mercy, took their name from one of his songs, if I remember right. Sure, and Who by Fire, Coil covers. Right. Yeah, so I think Leonard Cohen belongs on this list of people who influenced goth music. He has some really depressing songs. He absolutely does, and it totally works within like the wheelhouse of the music we're discussing. Um, the next two records are a little of a detour because everything we've talked about thus far has been like rock oriented, but a lot of goth music, especially in the eighties was dancey or electronic based. So the next record is Tangerine Dreams Phaedra, which which, is beautiful. The musical textures on there are things that you could definitely hear probably towards the end of the eighties as you started getting into more like ethereal wave and things like that. And then connected to that because he was also a part of the Berlin school of electronics is Klaus Schultz's Black Dance, which again, not overtly gothy, but you can make an argument towards the later end of the 80s when you started seeing like spacey music working its way into the genre. That's where you hear more of that influence. Yeah, and you're not going to like this, but I think if we're talking about sort of spacey music and we were also talking about King Crimson, I feel like we need to at least mention... That Hawkwind's Hall of the Mountain Grill came I'd out. I considered it. Yeah, it's. I feel like it has some very goth moments on there. I've seen bands talk affectionately of it. Andrew Eldritch speaking about Hawkwind specifically. Yeah, Hawkwind is amazing. And I mean, I assume that anyone listening to this episode knows Hawkwind, but if for some reason you don't, you should know Goddamn Lemmy. Yeah, Goddamn Lemmy. And the first couple records are amazing, but Hall of the Mountain Grill is definitely a great place to start if you yep. if you like gloomier prog, if you like this sort of goth, sort of rock-influenced goth. No, totally. The next record, so this is technically the end of the list, although I have the unfortunate name to come after. Um, the last... Official entry is the Stooges' Raw Power. Which I think totally belongs on here. You would not oh, have... Absolutely. You wouldn't have any post-punk, and I think goth falls nope. under the post-punk umbrella. You wouldn't have any post-punk without the Stooges. And now we get to the Wait. really... Oh, okay. Wait, I want to add one more that is not problematic. <laughs> my least favorite word. Uh, is Robert Wyatt... So okay. it's like Interesting we, choice. We, bought, we brought up Brian Eno, we brought up Leonard Cohen. So Robert Wyatt, who I really love, made his fir- his first solo album is called Rock Bottom. And if you have never heard him, he sort of he worked with Eno. He sometimes like he's just one of those kind of people who seems to have a ton of crossover. I mean, he founded Soft Machine and Rock Bottom, I think, falls into that sort of Leonard Cohen, Nick Cave, sad bastard music, goth adjacent category. And it's just such like a sad, beautiful record that seems to not have gotten as much attention as it should. But now we get to the problematic choice. And (laughs) so I labored over whether or not to include this um, because... The person is a horrible human being, but I'm also not the type of person who believes that mentioning someone or talking about something is endorsing it. Depiction is not endorsement. So including this name does not mean we endorse any of his acts. But we can endorse the fact that he made some good music. 
Right. So <laughs> the person I'm referring to is Gary Glitter, who released a compilation album this year based on a single he had called um, Remember Me This Way. Yeah, and it's it's like a, a good mix. I feel like it's a good intro to Gary Glitter. Well, so the opening and closing songs on the compilation are absolutely songs that influenced goth music. The first song is I'm the Leader of the Gang, I Am, which if you listen to it and you've listened to Love and Rockets, you've heard like you've heard Love and Rockets because the song basically set up uh, the template for a lot of what they ended up doing, specifically Ball of Confusion, which I think is of a piece with that song. But then the title track, uh, Remember Me This Way, and I'm sure he'd love to be remembered that way. <laughs> um, it's a gloomy goth ballad, um, proto-goth ballad. It's obviously glam rock in the tradition of the music he was making in that era, but it's something that you can hear how it influenced like maybe The Cure or some of the other gloomier end of things. Which is why I also think Roxy Music's Country Life belongs on here because there's so much of, like, you can hear the influence. But even with Glitter himself, the image that he projected, the hair specifically is something that you saw. Roxy um, Music too? Well, I think more Glitter because you can definitely see it in um, Daniel Ash or even maybe to an extent uh, Peter Murphy. Like, the way he presented himself, the makeup, the hair, which was always kind of slicked up into the, like a point. pompadour pompadour yeah, yeah but so that his happened... image specifically i definitely think is something that you can see an in influence sure but i i do think there's this sort of general kind of like darker glam oh where yeah totally david bowie and roxy music to and an extent, mark bolan yes definitely mark bolan um some of the not darker quite slayed <laughs> definitely not slayed there's a lot of great glam rock, and I do like Slade, but not that end of things. Also, we should talk about something. It's not an album, it, but in this particular year, I feel like a lot of things that sort of tangentially related to goth music happen, like such as Patti Smith's first recording, okay, the Ramones' first live shows, okay. and Stevie Nicks joined Fleetwood Mac, and. <laughs> What, regardless of your feelings about Fleetwood Mac... I love Stevie Nicks. I don't really like a lot of Fleetwood Mac. See, I feel the opposite way. I love Fleetwood Mac. I love Peter Green era Fleetwood Mac. I love when Lindsay and Stevie joined. A lot but of her I, solo stuff I really enjoy. I don't I like solo Stevie. I like so solo Lindsay, which I'm sure someone's going to want to burn my house to the ground for me saying. But At some point, we have to um, post a video, the video of the... What's the dude? Oh my God, Trouble! No, um, what's the oh video the Mick Fleetwood. Mick Fleetwood. Oh, oh, there's this great <laughs> video. It looks like something that came off of Tim and Eric. It's Mick Fleetwood playing um, a drum fest, and he has. It's um, yeah, it's a really really long drum solo for one of the late '90s Fleetwood Mac reunion tours, and but it's the best fucking way, terrifying. The best way to describe it is like white dude goes to Africa and converts to some random folk religion and comes back. To show Some off. demon-worshipping folk religion. And the best part is he has these wooden balls which dangle from a belt where his balls <laughs> should be. And he, as he's playing it, I can't do the sound effect justice. We have a friend, Josh, who can do it perfectly, but it's like it's like that sound effect like from... Like demon grunt. It's like that sound effect from Down with the Sickness, the ah thing. <laughs> and it's just that over and over and over. It's the best thing ever. And we will post it after this episode. It is the best thing ever, but... 
if you're not familiar with Mick Fleetwood, <laughs> he is a... He's on all the coke. He's on all the drugs ever, not just coke. But he's this like giant, tall man. I want to say... With a skullet and a beard. Yes, with a skullet. He looks like a warlock is what he looks he like. He looks like... He totally looks like a warlock. But he has this sort of terrifying face where he always looks really excited but in a way where like you're like kill you. where you're like a little afraid for your personal safety. Oh, absolutely. And so but I feel like Stevie the way she dressed and a lot of her Fleetwood Mac fronted songs you have to admit are an influence on things like Faith in the Muse and I don't dispute that. I mean like I said I prefer her solo stuff personally like Edge of 17 I think is a great song and one I of my favorite songs. I could die happy if I never had to hear Edge of 17 again. I love it. <laughs> the guitar on that is amazing. Well, I don't think it was from Lindsay so that's blasphemy. Okay, so which of these albums did you pick as your album that best represented or best influ- was the best influence on goth culture? I honestly am so torn. Like, I want to say Nico's the end Just because pick Nico. No, so but wait, hear me out for a second. I want to say Nico's the end because I feel like it's the album on this list that is a proper goth album. But the list also has like five of my favorite albums of all time, and okay, one of them, which is Diamond Dogs, like I have a lyrics from that album tattooed on me so i feel like i have to say diamond dogs okay then uh which song do you think best represents but either bowie or his influence on goth culture we are the dead like there, there are a bunch of songs on the record yeah just the whole album okay but if i were to play something for our audience to represent him what would you prefer i think we are the dead works Your fuck me bumps 
definitely like so like i said before i definitely see bowie as an influence on goth culture and even culture more broadly like weirdos uh, people uh what's the model gia oh who yeah started off basically just following bowie around she was one of the doing all the Sigma cocaine so that era of bowie definitely um ziggy stardust and the image well, is something you can see how it would influence what came only a few years later. Well, Diamond Dogs in particular has this really great, almost kind of post-apocalyptic theme. I mean, oh, totally. if you listen to the album and you've bothered to look at any of the lyrics or the song titles, you'd know that he was really influenced by Orwell's 1984. And the album has all these themes of sort of surveillance and paranoia. And it just... This sort of urban nihilism that I love so much. So it's this is an almost impossible for me to narrow this down, but I think Fair. I just have to go with that. Well, in that case, then I'm stuck with Nico. Although no I one like is stuck with Nico. No, Nico because is that amazing. Album, that album needs like acknowledgement just because of like if you listen to it, it sounds like something that would have come out ten years later. It was so far ahead it's of its incredible. time. It's incredible. And I think John Cale all her music. Yeah, honest. I think the sort of combination of she and John Cale on those records, they're so kind of fearless and experimental. And it's funny, but the end, I don't remember why. I want to say I heard about it in some fucking internet forum, some goth internet forum when I was 14. What, but this album? Yeah, this was my first Nico album. That's interesting. And I listened to this over and over again for probably three or four years before I discovered any of her other albums. So this album also has, uh, as you mentioned, the Doors cover, The End, which is great. But my favorite song is Secret Side. Ships into the land, they'll be 
await reverence. Everything she did on this record was brilliant. And I mean, she had Kale as a recording partner, but I definitely, I think this is my favorite of her records. Um, even really? though she would eventually do more, more than Marble Index. I don't know why I connect with this one. I mean, this was my first, so yeah. by all rights, I mean, it has not taken long. Is I mean, so Marble Index and Desert Shore are definitely like kind of tied for me. Yeah. That modern classical contemporary of that era but avant-garde and definitely forward looking uh those albums are great but this is the one that i always connect with and then she did record a legit goth album in the 80s yeah i still think this is legit goth no i mean like a I, more formal I know, one because I know by the end mean. of the 80s she was performing with Bauhaus and trying to jump on peter murphy as much as she could i mean even the even the cover of this album it's like she went from being this sort of blonde like pinup model from the velvet underground to having black hair here like i think she just is so ahead of no she totally and so the other album i was referring to in the 80s drama of exile is where she definitely does the full pivot into goth because by that point she was hanging out with people who were a part of the scene or who were credited with starting it, even if they don't like being associated with it. People like Bauhaus yeah. and other bands from that era. But you can definitely see how out of this album, some of the 80s, uh, some of the biggest names of the 80s, like Susie and the Banshees, or mm-hmm. even to an extent maybe Bauhaus would have formed. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I still have to go with David Bowie, but... I'm not arguing against it. Like, Bowie is absolutely an influence. I did want to give a special mention to some of the other stuff on here. Uh, so, for example, on Raw Power, there's the song Gimme Danger, mm-hmm. which I feel is like a progenitor. It's pretty goth. To, yeah. It's the goth ballad. It's like an it's like the beginning of the goth ballad. Well, and I think... Or the goth rock ballad. Not necessarily the goth ballad, but a yeah. particular type of it. I, I think... Um, I, and I'm pretty sure I mentioned this earlier, but the song Bitter End from Roxy Music's Country Life is another one where yeah. if you listen to it outside of the context of the rest of the album, it just sounds like a goth song. No, totally. And for anyone who has seen the movie Velvet Underground, wait. Velvet Goldmine? Velvet Goldmine. Yeah, I was Sorry. like Velvet Underground It's the like movie? we've been talking about both David Bowie and the Velvet Underground. Um, now, if anyone's seen Velvet Goldmine, the band Placebo covers Bitter End in the movie, and it's like the More most goth adjacent. Yeah, it's the most, but it's like the most goth moment in the entire movie. No, totally. So, we've talked about the music, we've talked about the movie. We have to decide now if the movie is goth. The movie's totally goth. But we have to go through the rules. That's why this podcast exists. <laughs> so, what are the rules again, Sam? Rule number one, embrace the darkness. She becomes fucking evil. She has totally embraced the darkness. Everybody in this movie, except for George, is embracing the darkness. With and George dies. dumbass sword, yeah. Or we think he dies. I hope he dies. Or he fucks off to go bore some other woman. Find someone else just as boring as he is. Okay, so rule number two. Kill your fear. Lots of people get killed. You don't see it, but like they get well, killed. Well, and I think she starts out very neurotic. She has this line of dialogue where she talks about how she's not well and she's always sick. Yeah. And she's a lot of timid. that, yeah, a lot of it seems to be psychological. And by the end, she's a vampiric, satanic 
queen. So I think she's killed her fear. And third role? Live for death. Dr. Moldavo definitely lives for death. Well, they also have allegedly been alive for a thousand years. So, and their main goal seems to be drinking blood and worshiping Satan. So I would say that it counts as a goth movie. I guess. It counts as a goth movie. Goth adjacent? No, it's a fucking goth movie. They drink (laughs) blood out of goblets and wear nightgowns. Okay, okay. I'll give it to you. This one's a goth movie. Thank you. So I guess this is also a good time to mention um, Halloween is coming up. The most wonderful time of the year. And we are going to contribute to that in some way by trying to fill out a full month of episodes. So that means four episodes for all of you little, all of our little lovelies. Except there's, there's a theme. There's a theme. There's a slight problem because all of the movies that we're going to be talking about were made before 1980 so we're going to have to do some more of this kind of creative juggling (laughs) so it it isn't too hard initially the episode we were going to do today is one we decided to push back the movie is in 1971 and i found a lot of stuff that i think alice cooper uh mort garson who we will get into and if you haven't heard of him you need to look him up now but the theme for october will be the price is right the most wonderful man who has ever lived and who will ever live. Because we are doing um, a full month of Vincent Price movies. The original goth. Yeah, pretty much. Mary Shelley's the original goth, but Vincent Price is like one of them. Yeah, I mean, if Mary Shelley lost her virginity in a cemetery, I think I don't think Vincent Price can beat that. But no. <laughs> but you never know. So we're going to fill out October with uh, episodes featuring Price movies. So you can expect to see or listen to... Us talking about House of Usher, Dr. Fibes, things like that. And I would say if you have made it this far in this episode and there's a Vincent Price movie that you really want to hear us talk about that you think could count as a goth movie, please write in and tell us. Yeah. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, although Facebook's probably better because we don't Twitter is a shithole. Yeah. Twitter is a cesspool. So get at us on Facebook if you want to see a Price movie that we haven't thought of yet. Or on Instagram. We'll have to link to both of our accounts. Which we will do on the uh, page on the Cinepunks website. But until then, this was The Evil Eye. Thanks for stopping by. And sorry if you watch this movie. Goodbye.